If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We are going to be reading shortly from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. One of the most prevalent questions in our culture, one of the most prevalent questions from Christians anywhere is, what is God's will for my life? We want to know what it is that God desires for us and what it is that he wants us to do. This can take a number of different forms. One of the most prominent that came up this summer was Michael Phelps, um, who uh, in certain times, uh, it was, the story was made known that after the 2012 Olympics being the most successful even then, prior to the Rio Olympics, he was already the most successful Olympian that had ever walked the earth. He was the swimmer to which now all swimmers will forever be compared. He was successful in the one thing that he had set his mind to. And then after London, about two years after London, he realized that his whole life was built on swimming and that he had nothing left. He, he looked at all of his medals and he thought, being 20-some years old, what do I do now? I've got a lot of life left to live, and my whole life was built on what has already transpired. I, I have nothing left. And he said that there were times when he contemplated suicide, that the idea behind living was sort of worthless to him, and he wondered if it might be better for him to not even live anymore. Famously, and this is not the only time that this has happened, Warren, Rick Warren's A Purpose Driven Life was given to him, and he read, and he went to counseling, and he was helped with this. It is the fact, whether or not we want to, I'm not going to talk about Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life, but the idea was that, that there was a sense of, of purpose that came to him from that book. He wanted to know, what will it take for me to be used by God? What does God want for me? And there was provided for him a sense of purpose. We don't have to be a world champion swimmer to ask that question of our own selves. Every day we are asking ourselves those same kind of questions. I had friends once who not only asked the big question of what is God's purpose in my life, but when we talk about God's will, it's not just on the meta scale. It's not just what does he want for my life? Why did he make me? But it's also on the minor scale. What, what do we do in these specific situations? How am I supposed to talk to my boss? Am I supposed to go find a new job? Where should I go to school? What should I study? How should I handle this relationship? How should I handle this situation? We want God's advice on all of these things. We want to know what God's will for our life is. And in the book of Colossians, Paul then today will talk about his prayer for the Galatians. Primarily, that prayer is a very, very simple one. I pray, he says, that you might know the will of God. Let us read from the book of Colossians, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. Paul has already talked about the fact that Epaphras has come to him with this good report. These people in the Lycus Valley, the Colossians, along with the Laodiceans, have been converted. Many of them have been converted, and he has come to Paul, and he has told Paul this good news. And Paul then says, in the first part, he said, when I heard of your faith, I immediately gave thanks to God for the work that he is doing there. But Paul's prayer was not just a thankfulness to God. Paul immediately then shifted and said, not only do I need to give God thanks for you, but I need to intercede for you because what I don't want from you is just for your conversion. I don't want you to simply get to know Christ and to stay there. Paul took, apparently, the Great Commission seriously, which is not simply to evangelize, but to make disciples. Paul says, I have interceded for you to make you into disciples, to ask that God would continue to work through you. And specifically, he says there in verse 9, to be filled, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. I want to say a couple of things about knowing the will of God before we come back and really dig into the text, because I think that Christians can sometimes be confused about this, and I want to clear up a couple of things. First, what Paul is primarily talking about here, as you will see, is a sort of meta idea behind what does God want out of your life. This is not the same question that we often ask God when we go to him in prayer. We want to know about the situations. We want to know about this concrete particular thing in our lives and how we are supposed to handle it. And so we ask God for his spirit to help us with that. At no point in time am I ever going to tell you that's a wrong thing to do. You ought to go to God in prayer. You bear too many burdens in your lives because you do not go to God in prayer. I would never tell you to not do that. I will, however, give you caution, give you caution about what you ought to expect out of those prayers. Okay. I had a set of friends once, and I smile because I think that this is just ridiculous and funny. They were very holy people. They wanted to seek God's will in everything, so much so that literally when they went to the store, they would pray not only over, they would literally stop in the bread aisle and pray over what type of bread they were going to choose and the color of their toothbrushes, okay? I don't do that. I remember hearing that at the time and thinking, should I do that? And, and even as a young Christian, I was like, I ain't going to do that. That seems ridiculous, man. So, and, and I could have been wrong in that, but I, I don't think that I am. What we want then is we want to know, there's, there's an impulse there that they kind of took over the bar a little bit, but there's that impulse to know how God wants me to act in these individual situations. And too often what we expect, I think, out of prayers like that is for God to simply open up our hearts and to make it clear as though a shaft of light will beam down on a particular loaf of potato bread and say, yes, that is the one. That is not often what happens. You know that. I, there, there's more than one person in here who is frustrated even this week because you've prayed to God for help in a certain situation and you've got squat back from him. Okay? You got nothing back from him. The Bible is not set up to handle those individual questions. If you think the Bible is long now, if you got what you wanted to, you would not, we would have like lifetime Bible reading plans because you would never get through it, okay? We cannot put all of those situations in. Furthermore, asking for the Spirit to work like that ends up having two problems with it. One, sometimes you end up thinking that the Spirit is leading you to do the thing that you wanted to do all along. I'm going to tell you that's dangerous, 
because you will start to confuse the work of the Spirit with your own desires, and you will not be able to separate the two. You wanted the green toothbrush. My goodness, Spirit wants me to buy that green toothbrush because I want to. That's a really dangerous way to go about it. Secondly, it also doesn't mean that because you don't want to do something, the Spirit is telling you not to. Okay? An upset stomach can just be a bad taco. It doesn't mean that the Spirit is telling you not to do something. Okay? So you need to be careful about that. You cannot rely on your feelings and your emotions to lead you to what the Spirit is doing because oftentimes you will misinterpret that. So what we would do is back it up against Scripture, which is obvious and important, and we will talk more about that. But the other thing that you can do when you do this is to realize that the Bible has helped you in these areas, that when you need help in a particular situation, you find it not amongst your own self, but amongst a council of people. The book of Proverbs lays this out time and time and time again. Proverbs eleven fourteen, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. You ought to, when you need help in a situation, not just ask God and wait for his spirit to lead, but that spirit's leading. The reason why sometimes you get frustrated because you don't hear answers from God is because God is giving you answers amongst people that you refuse to ask. You need counselors. You need to have people that you can go to to ask for help in these things. Proverbs twelve fifteen: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So we ought to seek out God's will in these things, but know where you are to find it. But that is not primarily what Paul is concerned about here. Paul specifically is praying that they might know the will of God. And he says in two things, the ESV says, in spiritual wisdom and understanding, I think that that should probably be wisdom and spiritual understanding. I don't think that spiritual covers both. I think it should be in wisdom and spiritual understanding. And I think that he means two different things by that. Wisdom is how you live your life out. It is a right thinking that's applied to how you actually live your life. If you go back, again, the book of Proverbs is so helpful in this. The book of Proverbs is the book of wisdom in the Old Testament because it's laying out for you concrete ways that you ought to live your life out. That is wisdom. Wisdom is not head knowledge. It's lived knowledge. It's understanding how it is that you are to walk through the world. So you know the will of God by how you walk through the world. And secondly, he says, a spiritual knowledge. This spiritual knowledge is knowing the unseen things of the world. That's why he says it's spiritual. I do not think that what he means by this is understanding of the Spirit as though it is the Holy Spirit. I think that he means that it is an understanding of how the spiritual world works, that there are things that are happening all around you that you do not get to see. There are things and events that are going on around you that are bigger than the simple forces that you see in the world that physics and chemistry can describe. Those things are limited in value. And Paul says, you not only need to know how to live your life wisely in this world, but you need to understand that there are unseen things happening all the time. And if if you can live out both of those things, then you will know what the will of God is for you. The will of God is that you understand these unseen things and that you know how to wisely live your life. If you do those two things, then you will progress forward. We see this all the time from the Gospels, and especially in the life of Jesus. 
I've picked out one example. I have no doubt that you could go to almost any example of everything that Jesus does, and you can find these two things, how to live wisely and that wisdom that is founded on knowledge that comes from understanding the unseen things of the world. So Jesus says this in Matthew 26, 52. After Peter has tried to slice the ear off a soldier, Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Two things are going on there. One, Jesus very clearly understands the things that are going on behind the scenes that no one else is seeing. He says to Peter, why are you fighting for me? I don't need you. That's great. Good effort. You got his ear. I could bring down an entire legion, 12, in fact, of angels, and I would smite this place like Sodom and Gomorrah if I wanted to. But, he says, knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes, but he says, that is not the right way to live. I have come that the scriptures might be fulfilled. He says the same thing to the crowds that come out. You are living unwisely. You could have captured me when I sat teaching in the temples, but instead you've come out to seize me with clubs and swords. And he says, nevertheless, that doesn't matter. I have come to do my Father's will, and I've come to make sure that the scriptures are proved true. He has both a knowledge of what is going on behind the scenes and the wisdom and how to live that out correctly. That is knowledge of the will of God. That is how the will of God is manifested in his life and how it will be manifested in your life as well, knowing both of those things. And notice that the disciples don't. Not only does Peter go after the centurion, but after Jesus says these things, what does it say at the very last of those verses? Then all the disciples left him and fled. They didn't understand the things behind the world, and therefore, they could not live wisely in the world. They left him, and they fled. And Paul is saying to the Colossians, I do not want the same for you. I want you to know the will of God, and that is primarily manifested in understanding what is going on behind the scenes, the spiritual things of the world, the spiritual understanding, and how you are to live your life correctly. Now, the end of this, the purpose of this, he comes to, In verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That is really difficult. I don't don't just mean like difficult to do. We, We will talk about that. That is incredibly difficult to do. I mean, that statement is, I think, fairly difficult for many in here to swallow. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That word worthy, I think, is really problematic. English versions continue to use it, and I don't know why. When you hear the word worthy, the word earn comes really close. That I am owed it. It's, it's almost like you've, God has given you sort of a grace mortgage, okay? So he's given you a big lump sum of grace, and then as you progress in the spirit, you're slowly paying that back. You're slowly making yourself better until eventually, after 30 years, 
You've gotten to the place where you're good enough. And Paul says, ah, there you are. You're worthy of the Lord. So now what Jesus has done that was grace before, now you have earned. You are worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. Because when we use the word worthy, I'm telling you, that's not far behind in many of our heads. And so it's difficult for us to read this verse and to understand it that way. Vast majority of us would not understand it that way. We wouldn't really know what Paul was talking about here. And so a lot of people will simply turn away and they'll say, listen, I don't know how I'm supposed to ever walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. Am I even supposed to think that way? I I find it very fortunate that we are reading through. If you are not involved in a community group, please see Pastor Doug, Pastor Doug, or Pastor Richard, please see one of us and get involved in one of those. We are reading a book that tackles that issue head on. How are Christians supposed to be holy? And people, we struggle with this because we know and we will sing songs about how we are not worthy of the grace of Christ. We are not worthy of what God has done. We are unable on our own to be holy and good before him. And yet the Bible holds out the fact that we are to be holy. And it even tosses around words like blameless and worthy. A very, very difficult thing to attain to. So come tonight and learn more about that. But in the meantime, I think a better word here is suitable. It's suitable. Walk in a manner that's suitable for the Lord. We are going to read and talk next week about how Christ is the image of God. The book of John is replete with these references to seeing Jesus and seeing God. Hearing Jesus is hearing God. He says to Philip, Philip, how can you say you haven't seen the Father when you've been with me so long? Jesus is the image of God, not just the picturesque image, but he is literally the manifestation of God himself. If God were to take on a human form, and he has, he would look a lot like Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is not that you somehow earn the grace of God, that you somehow become somebody who God says you were totally deserving of me sending my son. Instead, what he's saying is you ought to be somebody who walks in a way that if Jesus and you were to swap places, if if Jesus were to walk in a mirror, that you would be that picture of him walking in a mirror. You are the visible, physical, earthly image of God. And note that he is not just talking to individuals here. He is talking to entire churches. This fits with the metaphors that we know about the church. Christ is the head. We are the body. You are the physical representation of church or of Christ on the earth. And Paul says, if that is the case, friends, you need to walk in a manner that is suitable for him. If he is the head, the body ought to follow. The will of God for you in understanding how to live in wisdom and understanding the things that go on behind the scenes, that is how it's manifested so that you might walk in a manner that is suitable for Jesus Christ, suitable for people who have been called by his calling. Ephesians 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2.12 back that same point up. It is the calling that God has placed upon you. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that you've been given. You've been called as sons of God. You've been called as followers and disciples of Christ. You ought to walk in a manner that is suitable to that calling. That 
is the will of God for you. You don't need to search further. You, you don't need a Ouija board. You don't need a magic eight ball, which things never worked anyways. They always bubbled up. You couldn't read the stupid things. You, you don't need any of that. What you need to know is that in your life, whether you are called to be, you think, a plumber, whether you are called to be an electrician, whether you are called to be, I have construction on my mind, whether you are called to be a pastor, whether you are called to be an engineer, whatever you're called to be, God, I don't think, cares so much about that as he does how you are those things, how you walk through your life. We are to be the image of Christ on the world as Christ was the image of God the Father. In John 5, 19 through 20, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. As Jesus has imaged the Father in all things, everything that God has commanded him to do, he is obedient to do. So we ought to mirror that walk in a manner that is suitable to the Lord. Realize the profound, profound prayer that Paul is offering for the Colossians here. He says, I have heard of your faith and I gave thanks to God for your faith, but that is not enough. I have interceded for you so that you would be able to know God's will, which is manifested in how you live and in what you understand about what's happening all around you, so that you would know these things, so that you might be the image of Christ in the world. The image of Christ in the world, of Jesus Christ himself. What a high calling we have been given to. How, then, are we going to do these things? Number one, that's a long time to get to point one. We'll go a little bit quicker from this point out. Point number one, we produce fruit. It says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. What an interesting way to put that, bearing fruit in every good work. We can be confused to think that the fruit is actually the good work. But he doesn't say bearing fruit by doing good works. The good works aren't the fruit, right? So everyone's got the fruit of the Spirit kind of at the back of their head. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? Against these things, there is no law. But notice those things are not necessarily things that you do. I'm going to go do some joy today. That's great. If you're joyful, that's great, but that's not things that you do. And more than that, think through good works. Man, there's plenty of good works. We see people who are not Christians do good works. This is one of the confusing things in, in life. You see, listen, Muslim people have a tremendous, tremendous urge to give alms to people. They are incredibly hospitable and giving that is good stuff. Don't be confused. Those are good works. But what Paul is saying is there's a difference between bearing fruit in good works and just doing good works. Because you can do good works for all kinds of horrible reasons. 
You can do good works out of anger. You can do good works out of jealousy. You can do good works out of envy. You can do good works out of spite. You can do good works for any of a number of reasons. You can say things like, well, okay, grandma needs to go across the road, but she is a real anchor today. Uh, I would really like her just to make it on her own, but I'm going to help because otherwise I would get in trouble with mom and I don't want to deal with mom calling me and talking to me about why I didn't help grandma, so I'm going to help grandma. So I don't have to put up with mom. It's just an easier way to go. And you can grumble and complain your way through life. I'm telling you, that is a good work. Helping grandma across the road is not a bad thing, but you have produced no fruit in that. There is no patience in that. There is no joy in that. There is no love in that. And so Paul is telling you the will of God to be made in the image of Christ is not just to do good things, but it is in your own life to bear fruit in the doing of those good things. That you ought to be doing them and it ought to build in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It ought to build those aspects of your life up. If you are doing them out of anger or frustration, you are doing good works that are bearing you no fruit. Paul would call that the work of the flesh. And he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go back and read Galatians chapter, Galatians, Galatians. I'm only doing my dissertation in that book, so I should, I don't really have a reason to know what that book is. So go back and read those, those fruit. Um, Three, progressing theology, progressing theology. I don't mean progressive theology. I don't think that what we're looking for is something new, okay? What I mean is that you personally ought to progress in your understanding of theology. You ought to always be knowing God and experiencing God in a different way. When he says, as he does in verse 10, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That doesn't just mean that your head is getting filled with facts. I'm going to tell you, bar none, that you need to know those facts. You've, You've got to, as a Christian, there is no substitute for good theology. We are not just a head religion. We are not just something that we want to have facts built into our heads. But I'm telling you, you will not know what it is to experience stuff until you know what it is to rightly apprehend what that thing is. So you will never rightly experience the love of God until you know what the love of God is. And you, you can look around and see this. It's everywhere. People talk about the love of God in everything because they think that they've experienced it because they don't know good theology. The whole basis of your experience has to be a deep, abiding understanding of theology, but the reverse of that is also true. You cannot, you cannot simply intake theology. There are certain aspects of God's character that we will never understand, things that we call the incommunicable attributes of God, those things that cannot be communicated to us either by how we live out our lives And I think part of that is also how we experience God. So we say things like God is omnipotent. He is able to do anything that he desires. Everything that God puts his mind and his will to is accomplished. He is powerful above all things. Well, we kind of get a sense of that, right? We can can look at creation and see that. We, We have a sense of an experience of it, but not fully. 
we say that he's omnitemporal, which means he, he has no bounds. He, he doesn't exist in time. God is as much here today as he was 50 years ago, as he will be forevermore, and he ever was before. There is no reference of time for God. Okay, I have no idea what it is to experience something like that. But all of those things that God has in his character that are communicable to us, we can not only mirror in him, but we get to experience from him. When we talk about his love, his goodness, his beauty, his, his patience with us, any of those things, not only are we supposed to read about to understand mentally what it means for God to be patient with us, but we also have to know that we have experienced that patience for ourselves. Listen, I can talk, I can talk about how my wife is kind. People have told me, your wife is a very kind woman, and indeed she is. She's very, very kind. And I can collect all of the times that people have told me things like that. And I can write them down, and I can have a little proposition, Brie is kind, and I can say, this must be true because I've been told it a lot. That is not a substitute for me being able to say, Brie has been kind to me. One of those things is an experience. The other one is head knowledge. I cannot actually experience Brie being kind without knowing that she is kind. But I don't really know what her kindness is until I have experienced it. And the same is true with God. You have to experience those things. So when he says you are increasing in your knowledge, not of God's will, but of God, you are both increasing in head knowledge and you are then by that head knowledge even more experiencing what it is for him to be love and truth and beauty and grace. Progression, excuse me, progressing theology. Number three, powerful endurance. Powerful endurance. Verse 11, Paul says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I think that's better to be strengthened in all power according to the might of his glory. That is, you are strengthened by God by the power that exists in his glory. And why, why is that? Why are we strengthened by the power that in his, is in his glory? What does, it, what does that even mean? We would take a trip back to Exodus Go back to Exodus 33. And in Exodus 33, Moses has interjected for the people of God. God was going to kill them and destroy them after the golden calf incident. Moses has pleaded for God for them. God has graciously allowed them to live. He, he had promised Moses a new people through him, but Moses said, no, you can't do that. You've promised things to Abraham. You cannot go back on your word. And so God has relented because of Moses' intercession. We pick up then in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus thirty-three seventeen. This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. In verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I am gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. Moving down into chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He asked for his glory. And what does God do? God speaks to him his name. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Moses asks for God to show him his glory. And what does God do? He says, this is who I am. You want to know what my glory is? This is my glory. And that glory is totally confusing. Let's be frank. He says on one hand, I am the Lord who forgives iniquity and sin. I let it go. I do not hold those who are guilty accountable. And then in the very next breath, he says what? But I will not let the guilty go unpunished. I forgive on one hand, and they are responsible on the other. The glory of God, then, in the book of John, if you read through John 3.14, as the snake is lifted up in the wilderness, so I will be lifted up. That is, he will be exalted. He will be glorified. The glory in the book of John is ultimately the cross. Why? Why is the cross the thing that we look to. When you want to know what God's glory is, look to the cross. And why? Because Jesus has a shaft of light come down on him, little halo over his head. No, there's darkness and tremors and earthquakes. It's because only at the cross do all of God's attributes coalesce into one great act. What do we read? Forgiveness graciousness being poured out, and yet at the same time, the guilty do not go unpunished. The glory of God is seen in the cross of Christ. And what is Christ doing there? He is gaining a people for himself. He is purchasing back people for himself. So when Paul says, by the power of his glory, that God will be glorified above all things, the power in that is that God will be glorified and he is glorified by redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. So that glory, that power will keep you because that is why he has died. Paul knows what's going on around you. He knows that Satan has fallen from heaven like a dragon and he is now looking for people to devour. He is looking to end the faithfulness of the saints if he can. And Jesus says, because my glory is on the line, I will protect you. And Paul prays by the power of his glory, he will strengthen you for endurance. You will make it through because his glory is on the line. You are, you are hitched to the glory of God. If his promises do not come true to you, they will never be true. One book back in Philippians, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he 
who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul sure of that? Because it is the power of the glory of God that keeps you. And last, and certainly not least, profound thanks. Profound thanks. He says, with joy, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He has made you acceptable to share in the inheritance. You were not, listen, you were not Jews. That inheritance was to go to Jews. The Jews have problems with the law. And so he says, to make you acceptable, to find yourself in the inheritance, he has sent Jesus who breaks down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And now if you are in Christ, you are now an inheritor in the line and the promise of Abraham. He has now qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. He understands that there are forces in the world that keep people in darkness. When Jesus comes in, in Luke chapter 4, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah in his hometown and he begins to read. And part of that reading is, I proclaim the good news, the favor, the year of the Lord's favor upon you. And part of that statement that he reads when he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing is, I come to free the captives and the prisoners. All the other things that he mentions in there, healings, miracles, Jesus does. We never see him going to prison and we never see him freeing captives. But he does. All of us were captives at one point in time to the dominion of darkness. You have to understand that there are demonic forces out there who rule and reign over the world. Christ has, as we will read next week, disarmed them. He has undone them. He has delivered us but not just delivered us, leaving us to die on the side of the road, as it were, but he has delivered us and transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he has forgiven our trespasses. God is worthy of our thanks. There's also something very important in here for us to remember as we deal with sin in our lives, and especially church, especially as you deal with sin in the lives of people in the world, it is very easy, easy for us to look at the people of the world and have very little compassion upon them for what is coming to them because they make horrible choices and then they find themselves in horrible positions. And we say, you are a sinner and you've got it coming, and that's true. They are sinners. They do have it coming. But let us never forget, the Bible holds, again, two things that seem to be in paradox together. They are sinners, and they need to be forgiven, but they are also captives, and they need to be released. Both of those things are true. Every single person, from a child molester on up to the most moral little suburban woman you'd ever want to meet, all of them are both perpetrators and victims. The most disgusting human being in history is nothing more than a victim of a dominion that sits over him, as much as he is a perpetrator. They need to be rescued and transferred into the kingdom of God's Son. These four things Paul prays, this is how you walk 
in a manner worthy of the Lord. You walk in a manner worthy of the Lord by producing fruit, by progressing in theology through God's powerful endurance that he works in you and by giving profound thanks. If you do these things, you will walk in the way that Jesus walked. This is not some sort of light prayer that Paul hopes is true. This is the whole purpose of discipleship. This is why Christ has left you here, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that is suitable for God himself. Let us then not only pray this for one another, pray that we might be strengthened in this way, pray that we might bear fruit in good works this way, but also pray that for the church at large, that God's glory might be known far and wide in Bay City, in Midland, in Saginaw, in Michigan, the United States, and to the rest of the world. May God's people rise up. May God's spirit move in this way. Let us pray this way for our own sake, for the sake of the church, and for the good of the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy of all things. You are worthy of our praise, of our adoration. You are worthy of every tongue confessing your name. And indeed, Father, by your word that will happen. We ask that you give us hearts that long for this discipleship, that we continue to strive forward for the things that you have called us to be, that Paul's prayer might be true for us as well individually and as Crossway Christian Church that we might walk in a manner that is suitable to be called Christian. We ask for this in Jesus' precious name and for the good of his church. Amen.